waking up is not enough flourishing in the human space a podcast by Polly young eisendraft and michael berger when you peek into the cosmic unity of existence and feel the love and inspiration of awakening what happens next whether it's through meditation spiritual practice near-death experience ingesting a mind-altering substance or being born again you don't get a map for improving your messy life in this podcast Polly young eisendraft and michael berger draw on expertise in science psychology adult development psychedelics ndes dreams and buddhist practice in conversations about compassion resilience responsibility kindness and development after awakening you will learn how to chart a new path for flourishing in the human space in which waking up is important but not enough and growing up is never finished co-hosts Polly young eisendraft and michael berger bring different kinds of expertise Polly is an author psychologist union analyst longtime zen practitioner couple therapist and founder of dialogue therapy and real dialogue michael berger is an entrepreneur an expert in psychedelics a spiritual practitioner of jewishness a skeptic a real dialogue specialist and a filmmaker who is known for his documentary improbable collapse the demolition of our republic Polly and Mike will engage with each other and invite a wide array of guests who are accomplished scientists and seekers whose work lies beyond the hegemony of materialism. Episode three, why wake up? What are we seeking through these awakenings? If we're not seeking an awakening, such as when it happens through childbirth or near-death experience, are there differences? Does the desire to awaken play any role or not? In this episode, Mike and Polly will talk about our desires or motivations to awaken. What is the primary motivator and why does nature sometimes just wake us up? What about our involvement with prayer, deities, and other unseen beings? What is their influence on the ways we feel about awakening, either seeking it or not? Why are there warnings from some religions not to get involved with these kinds of engagements? Hi, Mike. Hi, Polly. <laughs> so today we're really going to talk about the whole thing about the desire to awaken, why awaken, what are your motivations for awakening? You know, I tend to have this question like awakening from what? Awakening to what? And last time, we, last time a couple times ago, we talked about awakening from sleepwalking. And, you know, how most people are sleepwalking through their lives. And most of the time, all of us are sleepwalking in the sense that we're following our habits. We, we kind of go around mostly unconscious. And so that's one answer about awakening from what and why awaken. I think there are other answers that do have to do with more suffering or pain or conflict or violence or oppression, the things that might happen to us uh, before we understand life when we're 
early in life in our families, our families of origin. We see things happening. We can't make sense of them. We can tell people are in pain. I know that was the case for me. And I grew up in an environment that was a working class household. In my own environment, my, my parents were often fighting with each other and sometimes threateningly so. Uh, and then I was next door to five cousins and their parents, and they all fought with each other. And I saw a lot of domestic violence, people being beaten up and people beating up each other. And through it all, and I was often the observer and a fairly quiet observer, I wondered why nobody ever talked about any of it after it happened. It would just be over and nobody would talk about it. And at some point, I really did take on the idea, and this was when I was in the second grade, but prior to that, I had a lot of other ideas about it, but I took on the idea that I couldn't bear to live in this world that was called Earth. I found myself there, and the people seemed really to have difficult time with each other. Now, at the same time, you know, by the time I was in the second grade, I was going to school. I realized that there were teachers at school. There were other options for adults other than the ones in my home or in the neighbor's house. And sometimes my parents were also very nice and very kind and very good to me. I think by the time I was in the second grade, when I did become elective mute for about nine months, I think by that time, I really had tired of the environment. I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. So I was getting out of it in my mind. Now, I wouldn't call what I did in, at that time to be waking up. It was really escape. And it was a kind of escape fantasy, what could be called like a schizoid fantasy. I would escape to other places. I would talk to imaginary beings. I would talk about how I wanted to stop war, end war, and so on. So on one hand, I escaped at that point, but I didn't awaken. I mean, earlier in my life before the second grade, as I mentioned before, I did discover spinning around led to, you know, what I remember as levitating a little bit off the ground. I don't know if somebody else were looking at me, whether they'd say I was levitating, but that was the experience I had. And so before I did this, this nine months of silent retreat, uh, I did have experiences that indicated to me that the material world was not absolute, that there were, there were things going on behind the scenes, there were unseen beings, there were saints I could talk to, there was levitation that I could do. So I did not have the experience early on, and I would say probably ever, that the material world was the limit of what was available in my experience. So in a certain sense, uh, once I got into meditation and I learned how to use my mind to get into concentrated states, none of that seemed especially odd to me, but I was an odd child. So I know that my experience, which was that I was somehow by nature not confined to the material world. Uh, I did not have that sense of the desire to wake up 
to escape the confines of the material world. I more or less had the desire to escape the people that were in the world around me. By the time I did seek out Zen training and, and that kind of meditation practice, it was because I wanted to help with the suffering of the world. And I didn't think that anyone around me knew anything about how to help with suffering of the world. So in a sense, I saw the meditative path because I had encountered so much difficulty as a child uh, and domestic violence and difficulties in the family. And then the, in the second grade also, the knowledge of war. When my father told me about what it was like to fight in the war and I came to understand that in the war, he probably killed people and that the people around him killed people and that war was really the intentional desire to kill other people was my understanding of it. So I guess what I'm, what I'm saying for myself, I think may be different from a lot of people. It wasn't like I was wanting to take LSD because I felt too confined by my ego. I, I never really had that experience, but instead, I wanted to escape from what people did to each other, but then eventually I wanted to awaken whatever it was in the profound compassion of the universe or the Buddha or deities. or I wanted to awaken that in such a way that I could make use of it in helping other people. So that's sort of my beginning story of awakening myself. I mean, there's more to it and I'll talk about that as we move on. But so from my point of view, it was my own peculiar nature that was involved in awakening. And I didn't feel some of the things that I know many other people have felt because I've talked to them about it. People who took psychedelics early on or, or sought Zen training because they wanted to get out of the confines of the material world. So how about you? I mean, how did your desire to awaken get going? And what do you think you were motivated by? I think I share the sense of, or an early awareness of the dysfunctionality of my family, because some of my earliest memories were of actually wondering whether or not I was actually their child, because I perceived things so differently from them from their shared understanding of the world. And I felt that way at a pretty early age. So for one, one commonality would be a dysfunctional family. Another is being an outsider or feeling like an outsider socially. And also just from observing, I mean, I grew up on Long Island in New York in the seventies and eight, early eighties. And I remember, distinctly watching people go through their daily routines of getting up, going to work, coming home, and getting to bed by eight or nine o'clock so they could get up and do it again. And I remember as a, as a young teenager wondering, is this really what this is about? Is, is there not any more than this? And for whatever reason, I had an internal pull, I guess, towards seeing things differently, seeing things from the outside. It gave me a different perspective. I did have early experiences with psychedelics before I graduated high school, but I think I was too young to really understand 
much other than at that time, many of my experiences really weren't what you would consider good experiences. I was in the wrong setting, probably didn't have the correct mindset. However, whatever came up for me was part of my own shadow. And so over many years, um, I think having those experiences brought that into my awareness. So I was able to adapt and observe myself and observe my own mechanicalness. And I think I became aware of that at a pretty early age. So I guess for me, the motivation came from wanting to understand myself and thinking that the observed reality that I was witnessing, that there was something deeper, that there was something transcended. And it was almost as if I could feel a pull towards that myself. Yeah, I, I think the notion of the transcendent or a deeper reality is an interesting one to talk about a little bit, to sort of pull apart, in part because Again, if I talk about my personal experience, it's always so schizoid. It's really kind of not typical um, normal neurotic kind of experience because, you know, even, you know, when a young age, and I talked about this in another episode when I was talking to the saints and experiencing states of mind that you could call psychotic fantasies, or you could call them hallucinating kinds of, I was going to say hallucinogenic, but they were more like hallucinating. So I had the sense that the world that I was in had these other qualities. It wasn't just the material world, but it had these un, unseen features. And, you know, I tried to check these things out from time to time, experiences that I had. My mother would typically say, don't dwell on that you know, just try to forget it. And then once I asked the nun that was teaching my catechism class about some experiences that I had, because I had no access to anybody else who was a trained cleric. You know, I, I went to confession to the priests, but I knew that that wasn't the place to bring up weird stuff. So I asked this nun and she said, oh, she said, you know, you need to be careful because the devil is always lingering around. And this could be obsession by the devil. And she said it really kind of seriously, shocked me because I'd never thought of that. And then I did start to be more apprehensive about these, let's say, hallucinations, things that I saw or heard. And so I backed away from them more. But from my point of view there, it wasn't exactly a deep reality, but a thicker reality. Reality was thick with things that weren't visible to other people. But then I trained myself to stop paying attention to those things because I was afraid that they might be occurring from some source that I shouldn't be involved with, let's say. You know, you can, you can have that, like you said, you were having the feeling of being called by a deeper reality, but you also had some sense of your shadow or your disavowed aspects of yourself were made visible through these experiences with hallucinogenic substances. So I, I always wonder when we have this metaphor of depth, if we're almost always going back to Freud's idea of an archeological dig, 
because he intentionally put this metaphor into psychoanalysis that there are layers of the mind and you have to dig through the layers to get to the fundamental sources in the mind. But I mean, the metaphor never really appealed to me because I didn't sense something as deeper than something else. I sensed it more like there's a lot of stuff together and you have to sort through it. So um, I, I just, I think it's an interesting idea. Like, are we transcending something that is inhibiting us like waking up from sleepwalking, are we are we accessing things that maybe are available, but we kind of typically block off? Like I had available a lot of fantasy or schizoid fantasy or hallucinations as a child, and then I blocked them off after a while. Or is it something else? Is it that we as a culture North American culture, we only allow certain kinds of beings to be real here. So, I mean, Bio Akamalafi, for example, the Nigerian psychologist, he grew up with Yoruba, that particular religion in his culture, and there was no limit on, you could have a lot of invisible beings affecting you. And he points out that now in North America, we talk about the, your biome, and so those are invisible beings affecting you, you know, and there, there are things around that aren't necessarily visible in the material world. So I kind of wanted to introduce that issue about depth, because sometimes that metaphor gets used. It was Freud's metaphor for the layers of the mind. I don't know if it's a useful metaphor. What do you, what do you think? I do think it's a useful metaphor. And I was also thinking of there are other categories of experiences that are beyond normal waking reality that I had had in childhood and continue to have experiences that violated the rules of reality. So, for example, one of them would be would seem to be over a period of over 10 or 12 years, the emergence of a past life memory. Another one, which was by far the most vivid was my sister's mother-in-law and my sister and her whole family were on a cruise. I didn't know at the time they were together or on a cruise. And I'm usually a very, very heavy sleeper. I don't wake up. And I went to sleep and about an hour and a half after I went to sleep, I shot straight up and scared my wife to death. She said, what's, what's going on? And I said, I just had a visit from John's mother. And she goes, it's a dream, go back to sleep. And I'm like, this isn't a dream. Dreams don't wake me up. I actually rarely remember my dreams. And then two days later, I got a call from my sister, pretty much at the exact moment that I had that experience was the moment that she passed away in her cabin on the ship. And so to me, if, quote, the objective reality is out there, and we're, quote, in our brain, we're a byproduct of whatever's going on neurologically, that experience can't happen. It breaks right. the rules. Right, right. And having had many of those experiences, I also had to learn early on not really to share them with most people because most people wanted to attack or challenge the veracity of my experience. Mm -hmm. It's my experience. You can't invalidate it. You know, like you were saying as a child, the, the experiences you had, while other people 
they may appear to them to look a certain way, it's still a valid internal experience, no matter what the source is for it. So I've, I've had series of very, very odd experiences that I think for most other people, when I would share, they would look at me like I was crazy. But to me, this was a normal way of being in the world. The people, the universe, I mean, they, things happen that violate the materialist formula for reality. And so that, and, and with experiences of really meaningful synchronicities, the wall between inner and outer began to become more permeable. And eventually, through additional work with meditation, psychotherapy, and psychedelics, you know, my map or maps of reality shifted dramatically to live in a universe where it is our consciousness, each individual's consciousness, that is seamlessly interconnected. We just don't perceive it that way. And part of that, you know, as, as you put it, we're here in space-time. And very frequently, where and when we are born, we inherit a cultural map that is invisible to us unless we travel around the world. That gives shape to the initial, maybe let's say, we'll call it a cultural container. For the most part, for most people, at least for me, that container was invisible. It was only after meeting other people and traveling and seeing how other people lived that I began to realize that this is just a localized container from a particular time. So the notion of that space and time, we're born into it. We can maybe at another time get into whether or not we choose to be born into it. But that veil shifted for me probably when I was like in, in a very, very real way when I was 17 years old. And as my experiences grew and, and the experiences varied, the feedback I was getting, or at least my perception of how the nature of reality seemed to be unfolding at the time was that we live, I was living in a very magical world. And at times I would feel a great deal of joy. And then in those states of ecstasy and joy or expansiveness, I could see or witness how others' wants, desires were connected to other people's pain. I could see this in myself with different aspects of beliefs or emotions that I had or different patterns of behavior that really didn't serve me. As I became more aware of them at this, from this perspective, by observing, eventually I was able to accept and change those patterns. So to me, the, the process of waking up has been kind of on and off, but there's always been an internal drive or desire for something more expansive, for, for a much deeper lived sense of connectedness. So the, the deeper comes from, and the reason you like that metaphor of depth is that it is about connection for you and also connecting the dots of what goes with what and why you might have certain feelings of joy and somehow those could even be your feelings interacting with things that brought sorrow to others, et cetera. So I can understand how the metaphor of depth is useful in that way. I 
I would say that for me, a part of what had to happen, and it happened gradually, is that I did have to wall off some of the, let's say, you know, transpersonal experiences or transcendent experiences that would sort of distract me from, you know, everyday relationships, relationships, ordinary relationships to people. By the time I graduated from high school and began college, uh, and of course I was a practicing Roman Catholic at that point, I, I felt like the most important thing that I could investigate, study, discover, was the answer to the question, what is really going on here? You know, it's a big question, but I couldn't make it a smaller question. It seemed like I needed to understand what is going on. You know, I pursued different kinds of studies. First, I, I was an art major, uh, studio art, then psychology, sociology. I landed in French and English literature and then in medieval French and English literature because I liked the worldview there. I felt it was comprehensive, the animated worldview, so that there were forces that were in the world that were not visible. I probably would have trotted off in that direction to study medieval studies, but I got involved in the Black Power Movement, North Carolina, and it didn't fit together with medieval studies. So eventually through all of that, not that far eventually, because I was only 22 years old, I guess, I ended up at the Rochester Zen Center. And I had been looking for, I left the Catholic Church, been looking for a religion that was based in experience, not in dogma. I knew by then that I needed to have a religion to practice. And the reason I needed that is I needed other people who had the same kinds of questions that I had, the questions being like, what the hell is going on here? You know, what is the nature of reality? What is the truth about this world that we're in? And the Zen people seem to have it over all of the others at that point. They seem to be the ones asking the clearest questions, also having methods to answer the questions. And then once I got into Zazen, which is sitting meditation, and it was a very disciplined time in Zen meditation in the early 70s, I contacted states of mind then that I had not contacted previously. And they're called absorption states. It's a little hard to describe them, but they're extremely motivating. Like you want to go back to them when you've been in them, not because they're ecstatic. They are definitely not ecstatic. Also, sometimes you have ecstatic uh, feelings or experiences, but more because they are so real. They are states of being that you haven't been in ever. And they seem vast and they seem substantial and your sense of embodiment goes away. You don't have the limits of your embodiment. And then other things happen, sometimes colors, sometimes sounds and things. So once I, once I got in touch with these states of mind, and they weren't necessarily the states of mind I was looking for or I was motivated by. I mean, I think I was motive, what I was motivated by at that point was the desire to somehow be in contact with this deep compassion that I, I believed was not very often cultivated in ordinary life. It took me a long time to get to the compassion through meditation because I think I started on a path that I would say was a wisdom path rather than a compassion path. But the states of mind that I contacted in those early days of Zen meditation were profoundly interesting, but they also required 
a lot of physical sacrifice, like a lot of energy because you had to sit still for usually 35 to 45 minutes. And no matter what you were feeling, you had to sit still. And I did not have a lot of techniques for that. Now I do. But back then I was just doing it by my will. So every muscle in my body would be fatigued. And it was like extreme mountain climbing. I'd faint. A lot of things happened like that. But again, the desire was so deep that I didn't stop even when things got really rough for me. I, I have to say that I was never really interested in my own identity. I really wasn't interested in who am I. I felt like that was kind of patently clear. Like I was already doing stuff. I was in a world. I had to do stuff. I had to work. I had to earn money. I was interested in studying things. I felt like the part like who am I was not a problem for me. Where am I or what the hell is going on here? That was the big problem for me. And that I took on through uh, Zen investigation. And that was my very first formal introduction to awakening. And my motivation was definitely to figure out about why the human world particularly was put together the way it was, that people killed each other, that they couldn't get along, and that very often they didn't talk about their problems. They talked about everything except what they were doing to each other. You know, my motivator was, was suffering. I would say years later, I got to know almost all of my friends from the early days of Zen. No, in the early days of Zen, we didn't talk to each other. We were in these silent retreats, silent before, silent after. I would leave before I could talk to anybody. So I was meditating with a bunch of people that I didn't know personally. When I got to know those people in the 90s, in the when I came back to Rochester Zen Center, I found that most of them had taken a lot of LSD. Most of them were not on the track I was on. They weren't on the, but somebody please tell me what the truth is. They were on the track of, hey, my God, this is an expansive place we're in here. We can get to other places other than the world as it is here. And so let's try to do that intentionally by meditating rather than taking drugs and seeing what happens. And so most of my colleagues in those early days Zen meditation had started on the path through taking hallucinogenic drugs. And when I found that out, it did once again make me feel a little alienated because nobody else was doing what I was doing. Although I thought we were all together in it. Yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of people in the early days of meditation coming to America were motivated to meditate because they had taken hallucinogenic drugs. You brought up that I was using the term deeper, said I was using a spatial metaphor. So I find it challenging, but incredibly helpful to try to use uh, more organismic metaphors. So for example, the caterpillar becoming a butterfly is a better example where, I mean, the distinction being the caterpillar doesn't have a choice, whereas we seem to have a kind of built-in break that prevents us or makes it incredibly challenging to become the butterfly. Even though I believe like I felt this pull, I think I, I understood you to also feel a kind of pull. And in your case, I think the pull was about making sense and significance of what this game is that we're all playing. Nobody's given us a rule book. People seem to be making it up as they go along and at the same time, acting as if there's a rule book. That was the thing that was the big thing for me is the amount of harm, the amount of violence, the destructiveness of humans towards each other. So that yeah. was 
yes, the suffering. You can see and feel, if you're compassionate and empathetic, the suffering, and much of it appears from the outside when looking at others, to almost be brought on ourselves by our identification with our form, our identity, who we think we are, who we're told we're supposed to be. Those are all kind of keys. So I think we've covered a few things, which maybe if we recap, what are some of the motivations? Wanting a deeper understanding of oneself to be able to develop a more authentic sense of self, to have greater self-awareness and acceptance, and this pull for personal growth. So one category would then be deepening our understanding of self. Another would be, as, as you've mentioned, trying to make sense of and understand the nature of reality. That seeking brings us, or for me, brings me to a feeling of interconnectedness and a transcendence of my own little ego in my own little body, in my limited, bounded individualness. Another category I think we've touched on is about gaining some inner peace and well-being to escape from some of the suffering, or maybe a better way to put it would be almost a conscious suffering to examine why it is we suffer in order to deepen our understanding of ourselves, of oneself, and what I can do to maybe diminish that suffering. Um, well, I, I think, think the, the one one thing that I would, I love the way you're putting this together, but I would tweak it a little bit so maybe it gets a little bit clearer to say that on one hand, maybe we have the desire to wake up, as you said, to expand ourselves, to connect to others. And on the other hand, more like my experience, it's because of crisis. Because we hit some sort of crisis, either we see others who are entangled in some sort of violence or they're hurting, harming, oppressing, or we have, we hit a crisis ourselves. You know, this, this involves the near-death experience also, which is a crisis. So it seems to me there are two kinds of motivators. One is the seeking the expansion and the other one can be the crisis, that there's something that is so painful and difficult that we've got to figure out how to get out of this, make sense of it, help others with this type of thing. And I think both of those motivators do, let's say, awaken the desire to awaken. You know, they, they, they awaken the desire. And then we, from that, we can pursue the awakening. So I just, you know, I, I like the, the direction you were going there in recapping. There is also the issue of death, which I just wanted to bring on board here. Apart from the near-death experience even, children learn when they're about four years old, the finality of death. Often they learn it when a pet dies, when they see some roadkill, sometimes a relative dies, grandmother, an aunt. And you know, the, up until this point, there's the feeling like everything comes back. Like, you know, because the leaves die in the fall, but they come back in the spring. Uh, you know, we see things cycling through in nature. So we assume everything is coming back. But around four or so, every child learns the finality of death. When they learn that, see, they have to have enough ego to get it, 
what it is, then it becomes a problem because then it's very difficult to contemplate one's own death because how can one be alive contemplating one's death is kind of the idea of the dilemma of death. But there is no question that death is the primary spiritual motivator for all human beings because it introduces into the mix of everything this absolute mystery that we're not going to go on being. So where will we be or who will we be or where will we be if we're not here? So death itself introduces a mystery about life. You have to ignore it, not to be affected by it. And then if you have death experiences and you know near-death experiences, if you survive them, or if you actually go through death, you do have also an encounter with you know the field of consciousness in a non-material way. This issue about materialism, we're going to be visiting it on a lot of a lot of uh, episodes. But it, it materialism is the belief that the physical world is the ultimate world, and that the physical constraints are ultimate constraints. It's the belief also that when you die, you're dead, and it's also the belief that physics is the ultimate science of everything so that every other science is wanting to be physics and that if you deeply believe in physics and mathematics, the, the idea here is you cannot really believe in religion because religion is just pretend. So, you know, when, when we talk about materialism, the material world and the material hegemony, it really does mean that we're limited by physical world and physics. Death puts the kibosh on feeling at ease in the material world. And it is also the ultimate crisis. There is, there is a deep connection then between different crises, whether it's my life isn't working, I have an accident, something happens that is beyond my control, I'm questioning who I am, how do I fit in, am I more than just a role? There are so many different ways that we face crises. Sometimes we don't even realize it's a crisis as we face it. It's only maybe afterward as we come out of it, we look back and realize that that experience, that crisis is what catalyzed a shift, either in our behavior, our values, our emotions, the way we interact with the people we care about. And I do think that the closer we live to basic survival, like in the West, especially in North America, we take for granted how remote death is to us. You walk into a grocery store, you buy a steak, you don't have to look at the cow. So you don't really have to think about where your food comes from. We keep death out of our view for the most part. So it's not something we all sit around and talk about or discuss. It's not something people are even willing or open to discussing, although that does seem to be changing now, as I think more and more people are awakening. And that is, in one sense, kind of the ultimate crisis. What happens afterward? Who am I? Does it go beyond, you know, who you are? Does that go beyond your last breath is one of the issues and one of the things being investigated in the new science of consciousness, the people that are at uh, the University of Virginia in Charlottesville who are in the Division of Perceptual Studies 
also people working in cognitive science and people like Donald Hoffman, you know, space time in terms of it being generated by consciousness. So um, death comes in as a very big motivator for everybody in terms of waking up, I think. I think also the issue of whether we wake up as a result of something happening to us or something that we do is a big is a big and important issue and we probably can't talk about it all today but you know when when we when we do something like meditate or we take a psychedelic drug or whatever we're we're willing ourselves into a state but when it happens to us something happens that pops us into another state of mind for example a car accident very often people do pop out of their bodies they time and space change time slows down you know you see the airbags opening in a way you couldn't possibly see it walking around in ordinary life. And so you have these experiences accidentally sometimes. And I think, again, when you're in a material hegemony culture or a culture of physicalism, that, those experiences get explained away. People don't say, hey, that's interesting. Time slowed down. Wonder what that means. They say more or less, that's your brain. You know, your brain did something, made you believe that time was slowing down. So sometimes when experiences happen accidentally, people dismiss them, they're afraid to talk about them. So that's true for some people that have near-death experiences. They visit other places, they see themselves out of their bodies, and then they're afraid to talk about it because the doctors in the hospital or the nurses or their friends or their spouses don't believe it. They don't take it to be real. So sometimes when things happen to you, they're, they are too easily dismissed because are, you're surrounded by a worldview that this means nothing. Sometimes when you have such experiences, they're profound because you can't shake them in the way you could shake, for example, taking some sort of hallucinogenic substance where you could say, well, okay, I had this because I took this substance, not because it's real but because the substance changed my brain. One of the interesting facts about psychedelics that are now coming out, and I've, I've seen the look of puzzlement on people's face when I say this, psychedelics have no effect. Oh yeah, that's- um, They have no effect. In other words, if you take LSD and I take LSD, we're not going to have the same experience if I take LSD today and I take it in the same room a week later, the same dose, the same source. I'm not going to have the same experience. Unlike right. an aspirin, we know what's going to happen when you take an aspirin and when I take an aspirin. So when it comes to psychedelics, they do not have any specific inner experience to them. Some have distinct visuals feelings, sensations, at least with DMT, especially because Terrence McKenna has coined a term, everybody tends to see what he described, but I don't know how much of that is suggestion. Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody, I mean, and, it, and there are some very strange stories or experiences that people have brought back on DMT, where they seem to be saying that they're in a transcendent state where there are other beings. And uh, even Terrence McKenna, I was listening to recently, he was telling, recounting one of his journeys on DMT. 
And he said he had the distinct feeling that whatever being he was interacting with, that being made it very clear to him he wasn't supposed to be there. And the being was a bit upset with him and wanted to know, how did you get in here? <laughs> so psychedelics open up. They open up experience by, I think it was Aldous Huxley who described consciousness as a filtering mechanism. So we're filtering out the enormous number of signals we're receiving. Well, well, hold it for a second there. The brain filters. This is, so we're receiving all these signals and we have a human brain and we filter them like humans filter them. But one thing that all of the hallucinogenic drugs do is they shut down the cortex in the same way that a near-death experience does, in the same way that Zazen does. It is exactly when they measure what is happening, it's the deadening of the brain. It's the stopping of the filter, the typical filter. So when you're no longer filtering in the, this is the sky, this is the ground, these are the walls, that's the typical filter. When that stops, you have the direct experience of the dynamic field that you're always in, but you're filtering it. So it's the brain filtering a field of consciousness, which is infinite. And so the reality is infinite, but your brain is keeping you from experiencing that. So, and in fact, you can't, as a human, you can't stay in that unfiltered state for very long without dying. You know, I mean, that's why Eben Alexander was in his state, I think, six days, his brain was offline. And that was very long because his life was threatened. Um, so it is the brain that filters. Well, just to clarify, though, that was not a psychedelic experience that he was having. It was a near-death experience. Right. But as Roland Griffiths points out, psychedelics, near-death, same thing. They're killing. They're really basically stopping, the flatlining the brain. It's, it's, it may not be entirely accurate to say that about psychedelics, because in some of the fMRI studies, I believe what they were shocked to see was that the brain appeared uh, to be to have similar patterning, neural patterning to an infant. So in other words, the conditioned neural pathways kind of all melt. An another way of describing it, somebody would say, or one could say, it's as if you get to the top of the mountain to go skiing, and there isn't a trail in the snow. You're free to go wherever you want. There are no ruts to fall back into. So somehow it, so I heard you refer to it as the brain filtering, but I don't know if it's the brain or if it's an aspect of consciousness that a valve gets opened up. It's a terrible metaphor again. My understanding, and I would have to look back at Bruce Grayson, his book after has a lot of the research that looks at because he, he has a, actually a number of cases where people have taken LSD and later had near-death experiences. And so they've had both kinds of, and in one case, somebody's on LSD when he jumps off of a building and dies. So he's able to remember both states of mind. In that same set of experiments is where I got the idea that the cortex is deadened in the same way that it's flatlined in the near-death experience. So in a certain sense, 
if I'm understanding it correctly, and we can get back to this at another, in another episode, but in a certain sense, we have to remove the typical cortical filtering that we use when we're walking around. And so I could say in a certain sense, in growing up, I did not have the typical cortical filtering. And so there was available to me things that weren't typical. And that could have gotten me into a lot of trouble because I could have started responding to these non-material states in a way that would have made it difficult for me in the material world. And I think this to come around to kind of the question, why do some religions warn against this? I think it's for this very reason that you do have to conform and adapt to a physical material world in order to be a human here. Because if you do walk around and see a lot of pink elephants, for example, and other people don't see them, it gets you into a lot of trouble quickly. So a part of the reason why religions don't promote this is that it's not, let's say, socially desirable in a, in a true way, you know, in a non-trivial way. And so I think that breaking through the typical time-space view of things, what, what I, my understanding from the people that are studying this, this new science of consciousness is, What's happening is that you are breaking through to the reality that is infinite, but you're no longer filtering it in a human way. So you have to come back to the human filter. You know, you have to come back to your normal walking around Mike Berger, Polly Eisendrath way of being. Uh, you can't stay there. And it's one reason why people have such a hard time after they have awakened. And if they've if they've been, let's say, taking a lot of substances and they don't have a strong sense of social reality, you know, maybe they would have benefited from seeing that nun that I saw when I was in the sixth grade or whatever, who said, you got to be careful, you might be obsessed by the devil. <laughs> so the pitfalls, so the awakening journey is beset with pitfalls and risks. And that would be another reason that certain religions would want to steer you away from it. It could also dilute the power of the authorities in religion, uh, as well as perhaps even dilute the integrity of whatever religion or practice that you have. So there are pitfalls to be avoided. The other thing, like especially with psychedelics, but it applies to what we're talking about in waking up. It really is helpful if you have a social support network. Yeah. It's very difficult to do alone and most people who have a crisis that happens to them face this alone which yes. is also goes back to what you were saying in the prior episode that 65 percent of people who come through a near-death experience wind up separating or divorcing their partner yes yes because there's not the social environment for integrating it and the people don't have skills like real dialogue for speaking for themselves and then listening, paraphrasing what the other person is asking. So, you know, I think to kind of bring this to a close, I th think that the motivators for awakening can be expansive or they can be crisis oriented. They can happen to you. You can also desire it from your own experiences and questioning. Sometimes they do involve, and this is another bigger conversation that we can't have entirely, 
that cannot have today entirely, but, you know, they involve uh, unseen deities and other non-visible forces. And uh, because of that, there's a whole issue about prayer and how you address deities that you encounter or things like you were saying that McKenna encountered a, a some sort of being who said, well, you don't have any business being here. So, you know, the this is a much bigger conversation, the unseen aspects of the field of consciousness. But I, I think basically we've touched on pretty much why wake up, what, you know, what motivates us to wake up, and also what are the, some of the differences when it happens to you versus you seeking it out. Anything else you want to add before we end? Today? Yeah, I, I was thinking that one of the, I guess, connecting threads through waking up is a very vast shift in how I make sense of myself in the world, how we make meaning, what it means to be a human being, and that part of the process, at least for me, helps me to, or motivates me to see connection and to try to bring more compassion and empathy into my relationships, even, even just something as simple as smiling at a stranger. One of the teachings that I've learned through my experience is we very rarely, or at least I very rarely, think about or can even comprehend how my actions, how my words ripple out into the human society. So I may not see it, but when I smile at somebody who I don't know and they may be having a bad day, that may actually shake them out of their sadness or whatever they're, they're in their head. And then they may treat others differently. And I only became aware of this when I went to uh, my college reunion and had a person come up to me and I didn't remember them. And then he had shared with me the story of when he was a prospective prospective freshman, uh, I took him all over the city and showed him around Washington University, and he wanted to introduce me to his wife and children. He met his wife at Washington University, and like the whole course of his life shifted because I was just friendly and nice. <laughs> I didn't even remember the experience, so it made me realize that I have no idea how I am in the world ripples out, and I think from a more expanded state. I get a better sense of maybe the why behind being compassionate, being kind, being present. It does have an effect, but we rarely see the effect or consequence of our behavior. And we're not taught to look for these connections or these ripples. Well, you know, there are so many things to say about that. And I hope we will be returning to, you know, the reasons why when you can see the world as a vast, interconnected, dynamic field. The reasons why it is so important to be kind and compassionate, because it benefits you too. The other big thing for me about space-time and having awakened experience is that I recognize that if I pray or say a mantra for someone or I think about them and I don't necessarily see them, I can have an effect. So my effects are not limited by the limits of space-time. And so, you know, 
knowing that, it adds a whole other level. I think I'm going to say this is great today. I think where we've really done a good job in answering the question, why wake up? So I will see you soon. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Polly. Great to be here. Bye. Thank you for listening to Waking Up Is Not Enough. To explore further, go to www.realdialogue.com where you can download our free app and become a part of our online community. Purchase any course in the Real Dialogue app and you'll receive an email invitation to our monthly conversation where Polly and Mike hold an Ask Me Anything monthly on Tuesdays. Waking Up Is Not Enough is produced by Chris Coltrane and is available on all major podcast channels.